This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. And welcome to another episode of the Bird Hugger Podcast. Wow, that was a rough couple of weeks we just had. First, it was really cold, at least for summer. Then we had forest fire smoke from Canada to deal with. Then a week's worth of pouring rain. I was really starting to wonder if the sun would ever come out again. But you know what? The native plants did just fine in all of that craziness. Yet another good reason to plant native. I think we've got an interesting show for you today. Today, we'll be speaking with ornithologist Rebecca Heisman about the history of the science of bird migration. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Today we have with us Rebecca Heisman, author of the new book, Flight Paths, How a Passionate and Quirky Group of Scientists Solved the Mystery of Bird Migration. Do you think passion and quirkiness are two prerequisites for avian research? We're going to find out today. In her book, Rebecca goes all the way back to Aristotle in her quest to uncover the origins of migration research. And now I'd like to welcome Rebecca Heisman to the show. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, I loved your book. Could you please tell our listeners about you and your background? Yeah, like you said, my name is Rebecca Heisman. I live in eastern Washington state, and I am a full-time freelance science writer, mostly writing about birds and ornithology. So for places like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology magazine and the American Bird Conservancy. And before I was a full-time freelancer, I was the communications person for the American Ornithological Society. That is great. So now tell me, what led you to write this book? Well, as I said, I used to work for AOS, the American Ornithological Society, which is the big professional society for scientists who study birds. So they give out research grants and put on scientific conferences, things like that. And as their one person communications department, a big part of my responsibility was reading new papers being published in their peer reviewed scientific journals and writing press releases and whatnot to promote those. And I found reading about all of the methods that scientists were using to study bird migration to be really fascinating. I was reading and writing about papers where they had used weather radar to study migration and where they had used microphones to passively record the sounds of birds passing overhead and where they had analyzed the amounts of rare hydrogen isotopes and feathers to figure out where the birds had been, things like that. And started wondering, you know, how many lay birders even know about some of these scientific methods and what's the history behind them and who figured it out and how do they work? And so that eventually turned into my book that was published this spring. That's wonderful. Tell us, 
what is migration? How would you define it? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm sure there's more than one definition floating around out there in the scientific literature, but basically what it comes down to is birds making these predictable seasonal movements back and forth across the landscape. You've got short distance migrants and long distance migrants, and there's even altitudinal migrants that are just moving up and down within a mountain range, but it's birds making seasonal movements back and forth across the landscape. So to sum it up, migration could really be described as following the food, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of bird movement. There's other birds that are what we call nomadic, who are just sort of wandering unpredictably around the landscape looking for food sources instead of making these regular repeated movements. There's birds that do what we call eruptions, IRR eruption, not like a volcanic eruption, where some years they don't move at all. And then every few years when food is scarce, there'll be a big southward movement. Like this is when we see every four years or so snowy owls turning up in the U.S. That's an eruptive year for snowy owls. So, yeah, there's different kinds of bird movements, but migration is definitely a big one. So could you talk about the origins of migration research, including some of the personalities you mentioned in your book? Yeah, well, at one point. People weren't even sure what was going on with birds when they reappeared and disappeared with the seasons. So it goes all the way back to Aristotle in ancient Greece who had some theories like maybe some birds were hibernating in tree crevices when they vanished in the winter. And then a few centuries ago, there was a fellow in England named Charles Martin who wrote a whole lengthy treatise about his theory that maybe birds were migrating to the moon and back. So there's a lot of fun wrong theories out there in the history of bird migration research. The first hard evidence that what was really going on was that birds were migrating back and forth between continents was actually a stork that was shot by a hunter in Germany in 1822, shot with a gun. But when the hunter went to pick up the dead bird, he found that it had an enormous spear through its neck that it had been apparently carrying around for some time. And when they analyzed the wood and iron and the spear, they determined that it had been made in Africa. So this was a bird that had been speared through the neck by one hunter in Africa escaped, recovered, flew all the way back to Germany with the spear in its neck. It's a very unlucky bird, but it was the first sort of thing that set off people's alarm bells ringing, going, wait a second, maybe birds are making long distance movements between continents. And so ever since then, scientists have been developing increasingly elaborate methods to get more and more detailed information about where birds go and why and when. That poor bird. Talk about having a bad day, right? (laughs) I know. Yeah. Very unlucky for the bird, but very lucky for people curious about migration. Right. The subtitle of your book is How a Passionate and Quirky Group of Scientists Solved the Mystery of Bird Migration. Do you think passion and quirkiness are two prerequisites to be successful in avian research? (laughs) That's a really good question. And I should say a couple of the researchers that I talked to for the book have taken me to task for the part about solved the mystery because there's still a lot of unsolved mysteries out there. But yes, I think passion and quirkiness to some degree, depending on how you define it, are both very helpful. No one goes into a career in ornithology unless they're passionate about it. No one decides, I want to be an ornithologist to make a lot of money. So if you're going to spend your whole life trying to unravel these migration mysteries, you have to have a lot of passion to keep you going. And I think the quirky part just comes in where some of these researchers working in this field, both now and in the past, they're just so resourceful and creative. And you have to be a little bit of an out-of-the-box thinker to come up with different ways of figuring out what birds are doing, because it requires a lot of tenacity and creativity. Right. Your book is full of the stories of pioneers. And I think, you know, to be a pioneer, you do have to think outside of the box. You do have to maybe recognize things that other people are missing, or, or you start asking questions that no one else is asking. 
And you may seem quirky yeah. to everyone else, but in the meantime, you're discovering a whole new branch of ornithology. Yeah, or avian the research. Book, yeah, the book kind of turned into, I didn't realize this was going to happen when I started writing it, but it sort of turned into a history of every major technological breakthrough of the last hundred years, because ornithologists have been really good about borrowing from other fields of research. So, you know, radar was invented for use detecting incoming enemy planes in World War II, but it turned out that birds showed up really well on radar and it didn't take long for ornithologists to jump on that. And from there, we get all the way up to the Human Genome Project, which was, of course, the project to decode the human genome, but it did not take long at all for ornithologists to start borrowing those DNA sequencing techniques and using them on birds to figure out basically 23andMe for birds, where you can sequence DNA from a feather and figure out what breeding population a bird came from. So it's really amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. So to your thinking, what is going on internally inside of a bird during migration period? Are there hormonal changes that go on? Oh, I, you know, I believe they are. You're getting a little bit outside of my area of expertise here. I'm not really a physiology and hormone expert. But yeah, when birds prepare for to go on a long distance migration, they really reshape their entire body. They pack on a lot of body fat, of course, to kind of fuel up for the journey. But any organ systems that they don't necessarily need while they're migrating also shrink and atrophy away down to almost nothing to, to reduce weight. And then they basically regrow them once they arrive at their destination. And I believe you're correct that there are hormones involved in just creating what we call migratory restlessness. There's a really great German word that I love for this called Zugunruhe, which is just the word that scientists, including English-speaking scientists, use to describe this period of restlessness that comes over birds during migration. And you can see this even in caged captive birds. If they're from a long-distance migratory species, when migration time hits, they become very restless and flutter against the sides of their cage. And so that is a hardwired, I believe, hormonal change that occurs. Right. So now you just touched on this earlier, but could you maybe talk about the latest innovations in migration research, some of the techniques you covered in your book? Yeah, it's really exciting. We're getting better and better ways of figuring out the details of where birds are going. There's a couple different areas now where kind of the cutting edges. Of course, I think everyone is familiar with little tracking device backpacks that you can put on birds. And there's several different types of those that rely on several different kinds of technology. But we are getting smaller and smaller ones that last for longer and longer and perform better all the time. And of course, the smaller they are, the smaller the bird species you can put them on. So the technology there is always improving. And then we're also getting better at some of these methods of tracking birds' movements that don't require putting devices on them. I mentioned the genetic stuff is really cool. There's a project called the Bird Genoscape Project. They have to go species by species, but they're basically working on 23andMe for birds where they can map genetic variation within across the breeding populations in different geographic areas within a species. And then if you catch a bird on migration, you can pluck a feather, analyze the DNA, and figure out which of these geographic locations that bird must have been breeding in. And they can do something similar also by analyzing rare hydrogen isotopes and other rare stable isotopes in bird feathers, because birds molt and regrow their feathers every year. And whatever the isotopes, like heavy hydrogen and stuff that are in the environment where they're eating and drinking when they're growing their feather, those amounts of elements are then put into the feathers and feathers are inert. So that doesn't change. So after the bird flies somewhere else, you can pluck a feather and analyze the isotopes in it to figure out roughly where that bird might've been when it grew its feather. Wow. Cool. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So now could you talk about the navigational techniques that birds use to migrate? Yeah. Well, migration is so important that it makes sense that they don't rely on any one navigational system, right? They have a lot of backups. So 
there's evidence that to some degree birds can recognize landmarks aren't landmarks below like river systems and stuff on the earth below them we also know that they can orient themselves using the position of the stars in the sky this was demonstrated with some really cool experiments done decades ago where they put birds that were experiencing zugunrua this period of migratory restlessness underneath a planetarium so they could rotate what the birds saw is the night sky above them and show that the direction that the birds were trying to flutter in changed as the night sky reoriented itself above them. They can also use the position of the sun at sunrise and sunset. And then birds, of course, can also sense the Earth's magnetic field and navigate using an internal magnetic compass. And scientists have been trying to figure out for a really long time how exactly birds do this. We can tell from experiments that have been done that, that they do it, but it's a little bit harder to figure out what the mechanism is. The current theory has to do with quantum physics and special blue light sensitive particles in birds' eyeballs. It's really wild stuff. That is pretty amazing yeah. too, yeah. So what is your sense about human expectations around migration? For example, you know, I go outside in April and I just stand outside and sigh and sigh and sigh, waiting for the birds to show up. <laughs> I mean, I know they're going to be here. I'm in northern New Hampshire, so it takes forever for them to get here. Yeah, you know, I'm, in, I'm in northern Washington. So same, yeah, it's yeah. like spring doesn't start till I can hear birds in the yard. What do you think the tie-in is psychologically for humans? Oh, I, you know, I'm sure it varies from person to person. I'm sure there are people that live their whole lives without noticing bird migration. But for people like you and me, that's a big part of how we experience the rhythm of the seasons, isn't it? And it's a big part of like just renewing your interest in the natural world and in life when the spring migrants show up every spring and all of a sudden there's all this color and song outside that wasn't there before. It's really amazing. Yeah. Now, do you have children? I have a five-year-old son. You do. Okay. So are you seeing, do. do you see birding in a whole new way through his eyes? Yeah, he's really into birds, which is fun. I have tried not to push it on him. I've, you know, certainly bought him some books and stuff, but I think for the most part, he He's developed his own interest. We have a hummingbird feeder outside our kitchen window. He loves watching the hummingbirds. Sometimes over breakfast, we'll put on the live bird feeder cams that the Cornell Lab of Ornithology does so he can watch the birds coming into the feeder in you know, upstate New York or whatever. He's a hoot. It's really fun to do bird stuff with him. At five, he, you know, he can't really use binoculars very well. He can't like look at little warblers up in trees, but he's very interested. We talk a lot about birds and he wants me to read to him from my field guides, which is funny. Sounds like he inherited some traits <laughs> from his <Yes>. mom. <laughs> he asked me to read out loud to him from the Sibley Guide to Bird Life and Behavior, which is hilarious. Okay. Well, that's a budding ornithologist. I'm sorry. <laughs> <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs> so now do you think a five-year-old understands migration? I mean, does he talk about migration of birds? He knows what migration is. Yeah. I don't know how deep his understanding is, but he's familiar with the word migration and knows that birds fly south for the winter. Wow. That's great. Can you talk about Sidney Gaudreau? Was he the, he was the pioneer of uh, radar tracking? He was the radar guy. Yeah. So Sidney Gaudreau is this amazing man. I believe he's in his eighties. He's from Louisiana. He still lives somewhere in the South, although which state is escaping me now. And he's basically the first person who figured out how to put weather radar to work for tracking birds. So as I said, radar first kind of came into use for the military during World War II. And they figured out that birds showed up pretty well on radar. Actually, they didn't know at first what these weird signals that they were picking up were, and then eventually figured out that they were birds. And then after World War II, meteorologists in North America started making use of radar because it turned out that it was a really good early warning system for hurricanes and other big storms. And this was a really lucky break for ornithologists because migrating birds also show up really well on weather radar. 
So Sidney Gotro was from Louisiana. So he lived along the coast of Louisiana where birds are arriving off the Gulf Coast during migration. And he did his graduate studies being supervised by another ornithologist named George Lowry, who I write about in the book because he had developed a method called moon watching. Most birds migrate at night. So you can point a telescope at the full moon during bird migration and count the silhouettes of birds passing in front of the full moon as a way of quantifying how much migration is going on. Sidney Gotro came along and basically made all of George Lowry's work obsolete by figuring out how to do the same thing using weather radar. So he could convince some meteorologists who had a brand new radar station put in to let him come in and play with their new toy, just talked his way in. They showed him how to use the weather radar and let him mess around with it. And he would use it to collect data on clouds of birds arriving in Louisiana over the Gulf of Mexico. And this is a technique that's still used quite a bit by ornithologists today. And as weather radar technology has gotten better and better due to things like the introduction of Doppler technology, it's also gotten better for collecting birds. So this is now one of the, you can't tell what individual species you're looking at on weather radar. You basically just see a big mass of migrants, but it's one of the best tools we have for looking at large scale migration patterns as opposed to the behavior of individual birds on migration. Right. Now, another pioneer was Bill Cochran. He was the pioneer of telemetry, right? Yeah, Bill Cochran is definitely one of my favorite people that appears in the book. So everyone is familiar with wildlife radio telemetry, not just for birds, but even just like putting a radio collar around a deer or something to track its movements. Bill Cochran was basically the guy who figured out how to make wildlife telemetry possible, not just for birds, but for everything. He was the first person working in the 60s to build actual practical functional radio transmitters that you could put on wildlife. And he did a lot of work with birds. He was an electrical engineer by training, but he collaborated really closely with ornithologists in Illinois where he lived. And oh my goodness, they had some wild adventures. My favorite is in the 70s, Bill Cochran put one of his radio transmitters on a thrush, which is a large songbird that that he had captured in Illinois. And these transmitters only had a range of a few miles. So if you wanted to, to use them to study a bird's migration, you had to essentially follow the bird. And so Cochran and a student spent a week following this thrush from Illinois all the way up across into Canada in a station wagon with a hole cut in the roof for a radio receiver, just following along behind the bird on roads as best they could at night and then sleeping during the day. And it was, they had some wild adventures. So now could you share with our listeners any apps that you know of that are useful for tracking migration, the movement of birds? Ooh, for tracking migration. I don't know. My favorite birdwatching app overall is definitely Merlin, which is a free app that's put up by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. It helps you identify birds in your area. And also the best feature about it, if you ask me, is its sound ID feature. It can use the microphone on your phone to identify in real time the birds that are singing around you. Oh, wow. Which is, yeah, which is really cool. If you haven't tried it, you should check it out. I'm not a very good ear birder, and it's helped me become a much better one. I, I struggle to identify warbler songs on my own, but it's really great for that. And then, of course, the other big app that the Cornell Lab of Ornithology does is eBird, which is a platform where birders can submit their sightings to this giant database that ornithologists then pull from to look at bird movements over time. So I can't think of any really migration specific apps, but there's a number of great apps out there, both for identifying birds on your own and then for contributing data that scientists can use to study bird migration and lots of other features of bird life as well. Right. Well, I don't think I have to tell you, we have some big bird enthusiasts that listen to our show. Oh, yeah. And they are fascinated with all things migration. So... I hope that some of your listeners get a chance to read the book. Basically, the format of it is I just take every 
major technique that scientists have come up with to study bird migration, beginning with bird banding and going through all the other ones we've talked about, and devote a chapter to each one, kind of diving into its origins and how it works and the stories behind the people who figured it out and some of what we've learned about birds from it. And like I said, it gets into some really unexpected places like World War II and the space race and the Human Genome Project. And it's pretty fun. I talked to a lot of computer scientists and engineers in addition to ornithologists while I was researching it. Now, based on your research, do you have a prediction for where bird research is going next into migration? Well, sort of the cutting edge right now, if you will, is what they call migratory connectivity, which basically boils down to just getting finer and finer detail on where not just species, but also populations within species, because you can have different populations of the same species that have different migratory routes. Just getting really fine scale detail about their breeding grounds and their wintering grounds and the routes they take to get between them and the stopover sites that they depend on. Because for a lot of species, we still don't have that level of detail. We might have a general idea of like, birds of this species winter in this part of South America, but we don't know like birds from this population go to this spot and birds from this population go to this spot. And we need that level of detail to really be able to effectively target conservation efforts. Because if you know that like the Eastern breeding population of this species is declining, you need to know whether that's because of a problem on its breeding grounds or its wintering grounds on a stopover site or whatever, so that you can effectively fix the problem that's going on. So that's really where things stand right now is trying to get this really detailed migratory connectivity data for as many species as possible. So I imagine migration research is the front runner. It tells scientists what the effects of climate change are, what the effect of habitat loss is, construction and development in wild areas. Yeah, I think if you look at the bird declines that we've seen so far, like we know that um, the total number of breeding birds in North America has dropped by almost 30% since 1970. And the leading cause of that has been habitat loss, not climate change. So when we look backward at the losses that we've seen so far, the data that we already have, you know, we're necessarily looking into the past. I think if you imagine ahead a few decades, then we're going to see climate change start to rapidly move up up the list of threats. So I think we're kind of right on the cusp now of climate change becoming a much bigger reason for bird declines. Right. What are your hopes for the future in terms of migration research and birds in general? Yeah. Well, I talked about how they're trying to collect this migratory connectivity data in hopes of better informing conservation efforts. And of course, having that data is step one. Like after you have this detailed data on where birds go, then you need to be able to investigate each of those locations and to figure out where a problem might be. And then you need to work with the local people there, landowners, policymakers in that country, et cetera, to be able to actually make any changes. So it's definitely a slow process, but there are a lot of people working really hard on this. And when I was writing the conclusion of my book, I talked to a couple of people who are kind of leading the charge right now at the Audubon Society and elsewhere. And I asked both of the folks that I talked to if they feel hopeful in the morning, if they feel optimistic when they get up and go to work. And, you know, I was a little surprised that they both said, yes, they do. So I think if the leading lights in this field feel optimistic about it, then maybe we can too. And that's really reassuring. And I think you have to kind of make a choice to have hope. If you just decide like, "Eh, it's too big of a problem and I can't do anything about it, I give up. Like, that's not helpful. That's not a healthy way to live. I'd like to thank Rebecca Heisman for joining us today. You can find her book, Flight Paths, at the Barnes & Noble website and on Amazon.com. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. 
Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.